By the time you listen to this podcast, it will already be outdated. The number of people infected with coronavirus and the number of people who have died from the disease it causes, called COVID-19, will already have grown. That is the reality of pandemics. But this podcast series isn't about numbers. It's about people, about you and me and our families and our communities, and what we need to learn and what we need to do together. I'm John Finnegan. I'm the Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. When we celebrated our 75th anniversary just a few months ago, our motto was, Together We Shape a Healthier Future. Little did we know that phrase would become a guiding mantra for responding to a new disease that in less than four months has directly or indirectly affected nearly everyone on the planet. In this first episode, we focus on what we know, what we don't know, and what important steps we can take right now to manage this crisis. Today's date is March 20th, 2020, and this episode is called Avoiding Overload. I'm Michael Joyce, and I'll be reporting for this series. By avoiding overload, we're not talking about the information overload many of us are feeling as coronavirus enters its fourth week in the U.S. and its fourth month globally. We'll talk about that often overwhelming feeling in another episode. In this episode, we want to dig deeper into something you may have heard quite a bit about recently. It's called flattening the curve. So flatten the curve essentially means trying to slow the speed at which coronavirus is going to impact our community. That's Dr. Kumi Smith, an epidemiologist at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, who studies how infectious diseases move through communities. And the reason this is important is because if we end up in this scenario with a lot of cases that need um, severe interventions in ICU settings, and this is going to happen in a really short amount of time, it's going to really overburden the healthcare system because when you experience respiratory failure, you need very uh, intensive, um, high-resource interventions. Um, however, if we slow down transmission, we can essentially really just smush that curve down get it under a certain threshold so that the healthcare system will work really hard, but it will be able to handle all the cases that come to them and be able to provide every case at least a fighting chance of surviving their infection. And that's what did not happen in Northern Italy. Too much coronavirus came too quickly, leading to a massive spike of cases that resulted in overwhelmed hospitals, many compared to war zones. But that peak could have been flattened or spread out if what's called social distancing had been enforced. I know we've been hearing this term a lot, but really you can kind of think of it as we are all a bunch of balls bouncing around in space, occasionally bumping into each other and just kind of randomly moving around. But once you introduce a case into that kind of setting, it's really hard to predict who we're all coming into contact with and how that infection is going to spread among us. So put in most simple terms, what social distancing does is it kind of gets all of us as bouncing balls to stay in one place and to stop bumping into each other so much. And it's a very, very primitive, simple way to stop transmission, but it's one of the most effective ways. If you're in your house and someone in another house is infected, there's just literally no way for the virus to make that kind of leap. 
that's the very first and foremost thing that we can all do. Yet keeping that distance is still not first and foremost for many people. An NBC poll earlier this week found only 47% of people are avoiding social settings. To be fair, some people don't have much of a choice, often because of their job, like healthcare professionals, law enforcement, and many others. Others can't afford not to work. And then there are those who do have a choice. Their reasons for not social distancing can be varied, complicated, and even startling. Some don't believe the science behind the pandemic. Others don't perceive a threat where they live, citing a small number of cases. Some pub crawlers on St. Patrick's Day thought it would be their last chance to go out and party with their friends. The reasons go on and on. But what is clear is that these rationale will likely shift as the numbers shift. And where are those numbers now? Uh, The projections from the CDC scenarios, which have been vetted by a number of uh, uh, experts, over 50 in total, agree with these numbers, that between 160 and 214 million people in the U.S. likely will be infected over the course of this epidemic in the next uh, 6 to 12 months. That's Dr. Mike Osterholm, a professor of environmental health sciences at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Not only uh, are we talking about this high number of infections, but the number of deaths could be anywhere from 200,000 to 1.7 million, with the best guesstimate somewhere in the middle at about 1 million. If you looked at what it'll do to the healthcare system right now, the modeling data of supports that between 2.4 million and 21 million people in the U.S. would require hospitalization right now, which would literally crush the nation's medical system. You'll notice Dr. Osterholm is citing wide ranges of numbers, not more exact ones. The reason for this is because experts simply don't know. Until accurate and widespread testing is underway, the number of people infected will be both unknown and underestimated. Which means right now, the number of infections circulating in the general public is much higher than the number of confirmed cases. How much higher is unknown. I asked Dr. Osterholm, what else is unknown? Several uh, weeks ago, the World Health Organization brought together a group of of experts to try to lay out what are the critical questions that have not yet been answered in terms of coronavirus infection. And there were a number of important issues, such as, do people, once having had this infection, develop a long-term immunity? Or will they be able to be reinfected again after a few weeks to a few months? Number two is... What are the kinds of risk factors that we have to be very mindful of that might increase the likelihood of having a severe case and even dying? Are all the same risk factors we see for influenza the same ones we see for coronavirus? And we don't know. And what about what we do know? Again, epidemiologist Kumi Smith. We know that coronavirus is about as contagious, if not more, than the seasonal flu. We also know that coronavirus is three to 35 times more deadly than the seasonal flu. The fact that it's about as contagious as something that we all experience regularly, but that it's that much more potentially deadly, uh, we are in a new dimension. And what is that new dimension? Most certainly, it is one of uncertainty. We're talking just over three months of experience with a brand new disease. So careful science is struggling to keep up with an exploding pandemic. 
we are arguably a shell-shocked public. Only a minority of us have had direct experience with the virus. But the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, warns that could quickly change to a majority of us. And most certainly, there will be a ripple effect, changing all our lives in ways we can both expect and not even imagine. That's something we will be paying close attention to as this series continues. But before we go, we wanted to leave you with this. My name is Leslie Schweitz, and I'm an ER doctor in Seattle, Washington. Earlier this week, we came across a Facebook post by Dr. Schweitz. She gave it the title, From a Seattle Emergency Physician to My Wonderful Hometown of Omaha, Nebraska. I guess what motivated me to write it was my family expressing concern that not everyone in my hometown was grasping the severity of the situation as I was describing it to them, and they wanted me to somehow communicate the reality of what's coming to more of the people that we know and love. The letter touched our team so much that we asked her to close this podcast by reading it for you. So here it is. From a Seattle emergency physician to my wonderful hometown of Omaha, Nebraska, I am writing to you from the medical front lines of the U.S. epicenter of this pandemic with angst knowing what is in store for you. I am not warning you this is coming to Omaha. I am telling you it's already there, quietly spreading amongst you. This is a sleeping giant. Lack of testing nationwide has given people a false sense of reassurance, yielding low numbers. I promise you, it's already at your office and your gym. Many are likely not feeling the symptoms yet and are going about their days thinking, I feel healthy, so I'm fine. The biggest myth about the COVID-19 pandemic is that the doctors and hospitals will be the lifesavers. Actually, it will be all of you as a result of the decisions you make today. Our hospital systems will be overwhelmed. Resources will run out and ventilators will run short. We will not be able to adequately treat all who will be in need. Staying home equals lives saved. It is that simple. It is in your hands, not ours. As a doctor, I cannot protect my patients in Seattle or my Omaha family from this virus, but you all can protect your own families and mine as well within the comfort of your own home. Please stop comparing this to influenza. And to the young people, please stop blowing it off. The cavalier mentality of a few will collapse all of our efforts. Thorough handwashing is good, but not good enough. Make drastic changes to your daily lives now and get ready for the long haul. However many proactive steps the government asks you to take, take 10 more. They have been behind the game every step of the way. Consider what restrictions they place as your bare minimum. Make your goal to do better than what they ask. The greatest generation was asked to go to war. You are asked just to stay home. Please protect your families and protect mine too. You have far more power than you know. It's so simple. Stay home and save a life. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. For more information on coronavirus, as well as some links we highly recommend, visit our website at sph.umn.edu. Today is March 20th, 2020. And the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide stands at just over 246,000. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other.